of a certain old preacher it was said that he preached as a dying man to dying men. Dying? Yes, all of us, from our very first breath. Keats, the poet, could say about the nightingale, Thou wast not made for death, immortal bird. But that's not true of you and me. We were made for death. Years ago, I used to receive letters from a friend with a stamp on them that said, One short life, twill soon be past, and only what's done for Christ will last. Is that true? Is life so short? There are insects, insects with neither mouths nor stomachs that live less than a day. Compared with them, our lives are not short. Why, a person who lived to 70 would live approximately 25,000 times as long as such creatures. But wait a minute. That's not the whole truth, is it? We spend a third of our time asleep, approximately. So that takes out about 8,000 days. We spend another third working for a crust, whether we like our work or not. That takes out another 8,000 days. We spend about a sixth of our life in necessities, like eating and drinking and washing and dressing. These are surely not life itself, but we must do them to sustain life. That's about 4,000 days of our time we spend in those necessities. And then about as many more are spent in social obligations, whether we want to discharge them or not. And if you add all those together, my friends, it leaves a man who lives to 70 1,000 days of free time. And we haven't even counted sickness, etc. A 1,000 days of free time, that's not long. And when you remember that the first 20 years are the longest half of anybody's life, have you thought of that? We don't measure time by a clock, but by the number of new impressions. The distance to Christmas between the age of five and the age of six is one-sixth of a lifetime. But suppose I'm 60 years of age. The distance from one Christmas to the next is now only one-sixtieth of a lifetime. So it's true that the first 20 years are the longest half of anybody's life. When as a child I laughed and wept, time crept. When as a youth I walked and talked, time walked. When I became a full-grown man, time ran. When older still I grew, time flew. Soon I'll find in travelling on, time gone. O Christ, wilt thou have saved me then? An eccentric Christian knocked at the door of a friend, friend's home. And when his friend came out, the eccentric said, Were you expecting me? Well, no, was the reply. Well, what if I'd been deaf? Was the next question. My friends, few of us expect death when he comes. Life and death are enigmatic they bring many a surprise packet, and in the areas that count most. A minister was once asked, what is life? He looked at the questioner for a moment, turned on his heel and left. Later, when his friend came to him, he said, why didn't you answer my question? I just asked you, what's life? 
I did answer, said the minister. No, you didn't. You were there for a moment, and then you were gone. Exactly, said the minister. How could I have answered your question better? In the book of James we read, What is your life? It's but as a vapour that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And yet everything is so deceptive as regards the passage of time. Let me illustrate it. As we sit here today, we seem to be so still. And yet the earth is revolving a thousand miles an hour on its axis. And yet we seem to be still. That's the way it is with time, my friends. We seem to be standing still, but we're rushing on into eternity. Sometimes two friends meet that haven't met for a decade or two. And occasionally one will say, why, you haven't changed a bit. But of course the truth is that his eyesight has degenerated at the same rate as the other person's appearance. Well, so what? Grant that life is brief. So what? Well, it's time, my friends, to look at the unavoidable realities of life while we can still do something about them. Life's a solemn affair. At birth, a creature is born, launched into existence who can shake its fist at the Almighty. Christ said about one man, it was better he'd not been born. Birth is very solemn, my friend. That's a reality. Marriage, that's a reality. We covenant for better or for worse. And for many, it is indeed for worse. Instead of marriage bliss, it becomes married blitz. Marriage is solemn indeed. And then there's death, my friend, that fixes the character forever. But there's one thing more solemn than death, because there will be some people who will escape death when our Lord Jesus Christ comes a second time to earth. But no one will escape the judgment. It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Every Bible writer refers to the judgment over a thousand times in all. There was only one occasion on earth that was ever just like the judgment, and that was at Mount Sinai, when the mountain was altogether on smoke when the trumpets were blown, when the angels came down and God himself came down in the presence of men and gave his holy law. Why do we link Sinai with the judgment? Because in that great day, my friends, it will be seen how we have related ourselves to the will of God. And when we talk about the law of God, that's all we mean. The will of God. The law of God is not something arbitrary, something outside of God. It reflects the heart and mind of God that love purity and truthfulness and honesty and so on. The law is about that, my friends. These are the realities that we've just looked at, birth, marriage, death, judgment. But now we've come across another, the law. For in that great day it will be asked, what have you done about my law? There is a sense in which we can say it will be asked a different way altogether. What have you done about my son, Jesus Christ? But it amounts to the same, my friends, because when one falls in love with Jesus, one delights to do his will. If you love me, he says, keep my commandments. There are so many lives wasted. How shall they stand in the judgment? Some people spend the first half of their life dreaming about the future, and then they spend the second half of their life dreaming about the past. Many a life is spent doing nothing at all or nothing to the purpose or nothing that ought to be done. The future doesn't take care of itself, my friend. 
It's shaped and moulded and coloured by the present, by today. Yes, law is another reality that we must link with death and judgement. Unless we're a scientist, the thought of law doesn't give us a very good feeling. And yet law is the basis of existence, because we don't live in a multiverse, but a universe. Life's not casual, but life is causal. You can't even play a game of baseball without law, let alone run a universe. And law's purpose is good, my friends. A stoplight stops some traffic to let others through. And the law of God stops some behaviour, so as to permit the better behaviour that can give us life and hope and joy and fruitfulness. But there's no dodging the fact of law. A gypsy was once asked by the priest to recite the Ten Commandments. And he said, well, Father, I was thinking of learning them once. But I heard talk that they were going to be changed and revised, so I didn't bother. But he was very wrong. The Ten Commandments, my friends, will never be revised. Romans 7 and verse 14 says the law of God is spiritual, that the commandment is holy, just and good. Romans 3.31 says that faith does not make void the law. God forbid it establishes the law. Jesus said, Think not I come to destroy the law of the prophets. I came not to destroy but to fulfill. Till heaven or earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all things be fulfilled. He went on to say, Whoever shall do and teach the commandments of God shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever fails to teach and to live those commandments will not be counted in that kingdom. The Ten Commandments was given to Israel while in the wilderness, not given in Egypt or given at Canaan, but in the wilderness to remind us it was given for all men. It's a wonderful law, my friends. It commends every virtue and condemns every vice. Each negative implies a positive. There are ten principles in that law and the worst transgression of each principle is indicated. For example, the worst transgression against life is murder. The worst transgression against impurity is adultery. The worst transgression against truth is bearing false witness in a court. So the Ten Commandments names the worst transgression, but all the lesser ones are implied. Jesus made that clear when he said whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and whoever purposely looks on a woman in order to lust after her is guilty of adultery. That law is a wonderful law indeed. Think of its principles, my friend. The first commandment has the principle of loyalty. No other gods before me. The second, the principle of worship. The third one, the principle of reverence. The fourth, the principle of holiness or sanctification. The fifth has the principle of respect for authority. The sixth, the principle of love. The seventh, purity. The eighth, honesty. The ninth, truthfulness. The tenth, contentment. Which one of those principles, my friends, do we want to abolish forever? Which one don't we want in our own families, in our own country, in our own city, in our own village, in our own school, in our own workshop? There are just two positive commandments in the ten there in the centre. Two thou shalt's. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and honour thy father and mother. They go back to the two institutions at the beginning of time. Marriage and the Sabbath. From these two institutions come all other obligations. Because God made us, the first four commandments are automatically binding. And in the family, we learn to trust and have a right relationship between people and things. In the family, life begins. So after the fifth commandment, we have the sixth, thou shalt not kill. Life has two forms, male and female. 
So the seventh deals with that. In the family, there's not only life and purity to be protected, but property. So we have the commandment, thou shalt not steal. But there's another thing to be cared for, and that's reputation. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And then lastly, my friends, the root of evil, wrong thinking. Thou shalt not desire wrongly, thou shalt not covet. And covetousness is idolatry. So the tenth commandment has taken us back to the first two commandments of the ten, which are also against idolatry. What a wonderful unity in that law. Who to worship, commandment one. How to worship, commandment two. The approach of worship, commandment three. A time for worship, commandment four. The authority next to God in the parents, commandment five, and so on. A wonderful unity, my friends. And that's why it's true that to break one commandment is to break all ten. If we're hanging from heaven by a chain of ten links, we only need to break one, my friends, and we're gone. The law of God is meant to tell us how to live so as to have the most unalloyed happiness. It has the secrets of existence, the secrets of happiness. What are those secrets? Number one, we've mentioned. The universe is not casual but causal. The universe is run by law. It's a great discovery to understand that, to see the solemnity and the sacredness of making right decisions in harmony with the character of God as reflected in his law. That's secret number one, that the universe is run by law. Secret number two, put first, first. The commandments begin with God, pass to the family, then to other people, and then to things. Thou shalt not cover anything. My friends, most people are unhappy because they reverse the order of the commandments. They put things first and other people next, and family third and God last. God, when he gave the law, was telling us how to live, my friends. And if we will follow his admonition and give him his place and put people before things, then joy will be ours. The law is a perfect law, and yet it's not perfect for sinners. The law can no longer save us, my friends. It could have saved a sinless Adam. But once human nature became warped by the fall, the law could only bring us condemnation. The law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The law makes sin to increase and abound, according to the book of Galatians and the book of Romans. Indeed, we read this bad news in Galatians in chapter 3. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. Notice that, my friend, it's about everybody. Cursed is everyone. And it's talking about perpetual obedience. It says, cursed is everyone who doesn't continue in all things, abide in all things to obey. And it's talking about perfection. It says abide in all things. And it's talking about being practical in our religion. Cursed is everyone who continueth not by all things written in the book of the law to do them. That's practical, my friends. Now on these foundations about being personal and perpetual and perfect and practical, we're all lost. And so while I have praised the law to you today, my friends, I do not want you to think of it as a saviour. The law can save no one. As a matter of fact, the New Testament is very much against law. It's against it as a method. You cannot climb up to heaven by the shaking sides of Sinai. One slip and we're done. Indeed, we've all slipped, not once but many times. It tells us in the book of Galatians, in chapter 5 and verse 4, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. If you're trying to get to heaven by being good enough, my friends, you've cut yourself off from God. 
In Galatians 2 and verse 19, Paul says, I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. You don't even begin to live to God till you've died to law as a method. Let me read you from Romans chapter 7 and verse 4. My brethren, you've died to the law through the body of Christ, that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. My friends, there's no fruit bearing for God while we're trying to earn heaven by our obedience. When we die to law as a method and trust wholly in the merits of Jesus Christ, when we're married to him, then and then only do we bring forth fruit unto God. In the book of Galatians chapter 4, the law is likened to Hagar, Abraham's servant, whom he took, through whom he had Ishmael, the child that caused so much trouble in his family. And Paul says that the law is like Hagar, whereas the promise of the gospel is like Sarah, the free woman. Now, my friends, I want you to read that chapter sometime and get the point. Hagar was in her right place in the kitchen as a servant, but she was in a wrong place in Abraham's bed. And the law, my friends, is meant to be a servant, to point out to us the will of God, but we're not meant to be married to it. If we marry, it'll only bring forth an Ishmael, not an Isaac, a child of promise. But the gospel's like Sarah. Miraculously, she brought forth fruit. And that's what the gospel does for us. It says in Romans 6 and verse 14, You are not under law, but under grace. And the first part of that verse says this, sin will have no more dominion over you because you're not under the law, but under grace. My friends, do you see it? Victory over sin is gotten. Conformity with the law is attained only when we realize that our acceptance with God is not dependent upon our obedience. Don't misunderstand me, my friends. A Christian is obedient, but his obedience is fruit, not root. I would not work my soul to save, for that the Lord hath done. But I would work like any slave for love of God's dear Son. We work to the cross. No, that's the wrong way. We work from the cross. We come to the cross by simple faith, my friends. Remember the thief on the cross? He'd had enough of law and it hadn't helped him any. But when he met the Saviour, it broke his heart. The law says the wages of sin is death. But the gospel says the gift of God's eternal life. The law says pay me what thou owest. But the gospel says I frankly forgive thee all. The law demands make you a new heart. But the gospel says a new heart I'll give you. The law says thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and all thy mind and all thy strength. But the gospel says herein is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and gave his son be a sacrifice for our sins. The law says, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all the things written in the book of the law to do them. But the gospel, my friend, says, Blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven, whose iniquity is covered. When the law was given at Mount Sinai, within a few weeks, 3,000 men died. But when the gospel was proclaimed at Pentecost, 3,000 men lived. My friends, it takes 3,000 sermons by the law and more to even begin to awaken one man to life. But one sermon on the love of God can bring 3,000 to the foot of the cross. And so, the law is indeed a reality to us, my friends, but it has lost its condemning power. We can't be saved by good works and neither are we lost by bad works. Will that make us careless? No, my friends. 
How could you play with the knife that had murdered your mother? When we see that it was sin that gave our Saviour so much suffering, we will not want to have anything to do with sin. We will hate it. But my friends, there's freedom from sin. Only when we see the truthfulness of Romans 3.28. In the New English Bible it reads like this. Therefore we see that a man is justified by faith regardless of his success in keeping the law. Our standing before God, my friends, is not on the sin question, but on the son question. Have we accepted Jesus? Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone that believeth. That's Romans 10.4. Wonderful verse, my friends. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. What's it mean? It means, first of all, that he's the purpose and object of the law. It means, secondly, that he's the fulfilment of the law. And it means, thirdly, he's the termination of it as a means of getting righteousness. Think on these three things. Christ, the purpose of the law. And that's what scripture says. The law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The law is an attendant to conduct us to his school. It's the great net in which the fish are enclosed. They may be brought out of the ocean of sin. The law is a stormy wind that drives the souls into the harbours of refuge. It's a sheriff's officer that shuts up men in prison for their sin, concludes them under condemnation, that they may look to the free grace of God for deliverance. The law empties that grace may feel, that wounds that mercy may heal. Never God's intention to save us by the law, my friends. The law strips us that Christ might clothe us. It sweeps the room, the dust of the heart, so that we will seek the water of grace. The law kills that God might make us alive through the gospel. It's the surgeon's knife that wounds to heal. It's the needle of the seamstress that drags through after it the scarlet thread of the gospel. My friends, the law is not our saviour. Only Jesus is our saviour. He's its fulfilment. He kept its law perfectly. He kept what the law demands and he fulfilled the threats of the law. That is to say, he has met both the positive and the penal demands of God's law. He kept it both broken and unbroken. We broke it and he suffered for our breaking of it. He was not guilty of sin by omission or commission. So our Lord Jesus Christ indeed is the fulfilment of the law. He's kept it, my friends, without spot or blemish, without failure and without flaw. And he's the only one who ever has. He's fulfilled the original demands of the law, all of them, including the penalty of the law. And lastly, my friends, we've said that our Lord Jesus Christ is the termination of the law. He terminates it as regards it being a covenant of life. We're not under it anymore as a means of finding salvation. It's a perfect standard, my friends. It ever shows what righteousness is. The law is like the stars above. A mariner can plot his course by them, though he doesn't touch them. And the Christian aims at fulfilling all the commandments of God, but he confesses at the end of the day that he's not loved enough. He's not served enough, but his Saviour has, and he's accepted in the Saviour. There's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. So Christ is the termination of the law, my friends, as a covenant of life. And he's the termination of the law as regards its penalty. 
We're no longer under its curse. The law cannot curse a believer, my friends. And so I ask you today, what are you trusting in as regards salvation? Your righteousness? Your righteousness is as filthy rags. Only the righteousness of Christ is good enough to get us into the kingdom. And as he gave his robe to his crucifiers, so he gives that robe of righteousness to you and me because we crucified him. To believe in Christ is to trust him, to confide in him, to depend upon him, to rely upon him, to rest in him. To rest our hope of eternal life in his righteousness. It's no use bringing forward anything else, my friend, if you're not believing in Jesus. Nothing will avail. If faith is absent, the essential thing is lacking. Neither sacraments or prayers or Bible reading, even hearing the gospel. Heap all these things together high as the stars into a mountain. But they're only chaff if faith is not there. My friends, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believeth. You may be little faith, faint heart, but Christ is your righteousness if you believe. You may be sinking Peter or weeping Mary, but Christ is your righteousness to everyone that believes. The scripture says, I am black but comely. In ourselves, my friends, none of us are completely sanctified. But seen in Christ, we are counted as absolutely holy. You may say to me, what? Has it come to this? That I am to trust only in Christ for righteousness and be made righteous through faith alone? Yes, my friends, that's the whole of it. What? Trust Christ alone and then live as I like? Ah, my friend, you can't live in sin after you've trusted Jesus. The Spirit of God who leads you to believe will change your heart. You speak of living as you like. You'll like to live very differently from what you do now. The things you love before your conversion you'll hate. The things you once hated you'll love. Now, you may be trying to be good, but you make great failures because your heart is outside of God. But once you receive salvation through the blood of Christ, your heart will love God and his commandments will no longer be grievous to you. A change of heart is what we all want, my friend, and we only get it through the covenant of grace. There's no word about conversion in the law, but in the gospel we read, a new heart will I give you, a new spirit will I put within you, and I'll take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. Oh, my friend, look to Jesus Christ today. He and he alone is your righteousness. You can never love God till you see that God loves you. The best news of the New Testament is that this man will see the sinner. He's gone to be guest with him that is a sinner. My friend, are you a great sinner? He's a great saviour. Whosoever will may come. All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. And he that cometh to Christ, Christ shall in no wise cast out. Believe it today, my friends. Receive the gospel today. With it the righteousness of the Lord, imputed to you for Christ's sake, for everlasting life.